you know, he is the kind of Jimi Hendrix to Gagarin's Paul McCartney, but he is a kind of, he's the punk rock cosmonaut. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app so you don't miss out on future episodes. This week, it's the 60th anniversary of the flight of German Titov on Vostok 2. The forgotten second cosmonaut overshadowed by the exploits of his friend Yuri Gagarin. Titov's 25.3 hours and 17 orbits flight was a much more ambitious flight than Gagarin's and more dangerous. It was also a very political flight, intending to distract the world from the building of the Berlin Wall a number of days later. However, there's more to Titov than his flight. He was a different character to most of the Soviet cosmonauts with a love of pre-Soviet literary classics and enjoying his own company. I'm sure regular listeners will be pleased to hear that we have Stephen Walker back, the author of Beyond, the astonishing journey of the first human to leave our planet and journey into space. There's links in the episode notes showing you where you can buy Stephen's book. Now, I'm asking listeners to support my work and enable me to continue recording these incredible stories. And if you become a monthly supporter via Patreon, you will get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you are helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. If you can't wait for next week's episode, then do visit our Facebook discussion group where guests and listeners just like you continue the cold war conversation just search for cold war conversations in facebook i'm delighted to welcome back stephen walker to our cold war conversation the second soviet cosmonaut who went to space was the guy that i did mention when we first had our conversation who was the rival for number one place and lost that place to Yuri Gagarin. And his name is German Titov. And he is one of the great unsung heroes of the Soviet space program. And not only is he a hero because of what he actually achieved, but he's a hero in a different sense because he is a sort of bad boy in a way that Yuri Gagarin was not. You know, he is the kind of Jimi Hendrix to Gagarin's Paul McCartney. He is somebody, and we can <laughs> look at the sorts of things he gets up to, but he is a kind of, he's the punk rock cosmonaut. He's a really interesting, colourful, feisty, dangerous, irascible, brave, challenging, uh, you know, cosmonaut with a lot of interesting kind of cover-up stories around him. And he's the one that always gets forgotten. Because just as he'd feared, when Yuri Gagarin was told he was going to be number one and Titov was going to be number two, just as Titov feared, he, although very famous after the flight we'll talk about, he, of course, gradually slipped into obscurity. And really in the West, he's unknown. But 
absolutely amazing character, an amazing flight, and as I'm sure we'll talk about, amazingly important as far as the Cold War is concerned, because his flight happens just seven days before the Berlin Wall goes up. So in basically one week, the Soviet Union and its leader, Khrushchev, is able to crow about this extraordinary technological triumph, which is flight represented. And at the same time, he puts up the barbed wire that plunges the world into even deeper confrontation over Berlin, and which sets the mark and the tempo and the character of politics between West and East, between the United States and its allies, and the Soviet Union and its satellites for the decade to come. So a really pivotal moment in Cold War history, as well as in space history. So t- tell me a little bit about the background of, of German Titov and, and sort of like the, the, the contrast between him and Gagarin. Everything is different between these two. I mean, you couldn't get more different characters. Yuri Gagarin is the son of a peasant who is who plays by the book. He is a charming, delightful, by all accounts, a good, loyal communist, um, not one to challenge the rules, not one to break the rules, endears himself to sort of everybody in the cosmonaut training program and to his instructors. Um, he gets on with the job and he's very affable. He gets on with people. I mean, he could be an absolute nightmare of a character because he's just so damn good. But at the same time, what he has is a sense of humor, which sort of leavens all of that kind of relentless drive and, and, and sort of success with people. So this is Yuri Gagarin. Titov, completely different. Titov is the son of a schoolmaster. His background is not a peasant background. Gagarin is born just about 80 to 90 kilometers to the west of Moscow. Titov is born in the heart of Siberia, 2,000 miles east of Moscow, a completely different world. His father is obsessed with Pushkin and teaches Titov Pushkin and Pushkin stories and Pushkin plays and, and, and so much so that Titov's first name, German, is actually named after a character in a famous Pushkin short story called Queen of Spades. So he's brought up in this kind of literary, kind of slightly, almost suspiciously bourgeois world, which becomes a real problem with his kind of very proletarian instructors and trainers on the cosmonaut program. Titov is difficult. He is the sort of person who challenges people. He is brutally frank and honest about both his own failings and about others. He's impulsive. He marries the love of his life, his wife, Tamara Titova. I interviewed her in Moscow. She's still alive. After he meets her when she's a waitress at the Air Force base where he's flying jets for the Red Air Force, And he dances really badly with her. She makes a point about how bad a dancer he was. But within two months, they're married. He's the kind of guy that just gets on and does stuff. But people find him difficult. And in some ways, they like him, but they're also a little bit scared of him. He's got all of this kind of, this kind of, you know, literary background. And he's got this sort of learning. And perhaps he's a bit intellectually arrogant as well. 
And he's one of these guys who likes to keep himself to himself at certain times. So he kind of takes on his cosmonaut instructors and he breaks the rules. When he is one of those people that are being tested secretly at a hospital in Moscow for this cosmonaut training program. These are people, if you remember from the last time we talked, who are whittled down to the last kind of two or three hundred, and then whittled down further until the key candidates are invited for a series of absolutely horrific tortures, which are kind of masked as as medical tests to see just how fit they really are. And it all takes place in this hospital over a period of weeks. And the tests are really, really brutal. I mean, you know, they're baked in heat chambers. You know, they are made to come out of these heat chambers at 55 degrees centigrade and do a series of squats. They're hung upside down. Every orifice is being penetrated in all sorts of different ways to check that there's nothing wrong with them. All of this stuff. They were told at the beginning to say nothing of what they were doing to their families, to their wives, whatever. Gagarin, predictably, obeys his instructions to the letter. He tells his wife, Valentina, absolutely nothing. Titov tells his wife, Tamara, everything. He reveals it all in a series of letters, private letters, some of which I actually have and I quote in my book, Beyond. And in these letters, he is I mean, extraordinary, I mean, disarmingly open and indiscreet about everything that is happening, what these people are doing to him, the numbers of colleagues of his that are actually dropping like flies because they discover something wrong with their bowels or their sperm count is no good or God knows what any of this has got to do with going in space. But he tells Tamara everything. And what's really moving about Titov is that his wife Tamara at that time is pregnant with a little boy who would later die as an infant after several months of life in 1960. And his letters are interspersed with incredible love notes, really, to Tamara. You know, so in between talking about what the Gestapo of nurses, as he calls them, have been doing with him most recently, you know, putting electrodes in various parts of his body and God knows what, then he will say, you've got to look after yourself. You know, you're you're feeding two people now, you and our little boy, or it doesn't know that it's a boy, but our little baby. And it's really sweet. And his wife described to me how she would wait by the post box in her little town and she'd wait for these letters from her husband to arrive and her heart would skip a beat when she opened the letters and, and read these wonderful stories. So totally indiscreet. And and he could have been God knows what. I mean, certainly booted out of any chance of the programme had they been discovered, but they weren't discovered. And they're lovely. And I quote them in the book. So he's a, a rule breaker, but he's good at his job and he's a skilled pilot and he is brave and he is resourceful and his instructors know it. And that's why it comes down to the wire before the first human flight between him and Yuri Gagarin. Even the cosmonaut program breaks the rules for him because you were supposed to be 25 and above, weren't you, to become a cosmonaut? He was actually the young, uh, not quite the youngest, the very youngest was a man called Bondarenko, who actually died in this hideous fire in what they call the isolation chamber, which was this horrible, pressurised, sealed up 
Chamber in the Institute of Aviation and Space Medicine in Moscow, where all of these cosmonaut candidates were left to basically fend for themselves in total isolation, cut off from any human contact at all for an undefined number of days, an indefinite period. It could be as long as two weeks, it could be even longer. And that was part of the torture, to see how they would cope with the potential isolation of being in space without going insane, which is one of the really big kind of fears that the cosmonaut training program instructors actually had. Would a man go mad when he was in space, divorced from reality in the world, divorced from human contact, from life itself below him? And Bondarenko burned to death in a terrible fire that took place in the isolation chamber. Um, Titov was almost as young as Bondarenko, and Titov got through the chamber by quoting Pushkin and other great Russian classics. I mean, literally from memory, uh, over two weeks. I mean, that's how he got through it. Um, and he was able to keep himself essentially sane and occupied through that entire period of absolute and complete isolation in this chamber and actually endeared himself to his instructors who kind of assumed that if anything went wrong in space and Titov ended up orbiting on his own for weeks on end, which was not impossible if something went wrong, that he'd, he'd have Pushkin for company and be able to quote, you know, Tolstoy and, and God knows what and all the great Russian classics by heart. This is the kind of guy he was. Yeah, incredible. Incredible. And he, he was one of the finest athletes in the programme, but hated running. He hated anything to do with exercise. I mean, all of these guys were picked. I'm talking about the first 20 cosmonauts because they were fit. I mean, that's what those medical tests were about. And Titov was one of them. He was fit. But the purpose was to make them even fitter. You know, I, I suspect what lay behind all of this was, was nobody knew quite what to do with these guys. They were training for a year. They weren't at least the beginning, could actually manually fly their spacecraft. So the question was, you know, maybe they have to endure all of these kind of acceleration forces in the rockets, you know, the, the pressure of being in space, the, the, the fact that the capsules were pressurized, but not to the same degree as they would, as you would experience the, the atmosphere on Earth. And so what was needed was the ability to endure, to be strong, to be fit, and so fitness became a key part of the cosmonaut training. I mean, they were just constantly jumping and squatting and doing all kinds of things. And it's incredible that Titov did this because he hated it and he quarreled with his instructors. And he said, what are we doing this for? What has this got to do with flying in space? I mean, Gagarin just did it. You know, Titov complained about it. But you know what? He did do it. He did finally toe the line. And he became probably the fittest of all of the cosmonauts and the most acrobatic. So there are pictures of him hanging upside down, tumbling round and round, doing all sorts of crazy, weird stuff. And amazingly, the head of the cosmonaut training center, a man called Karpov, actually says, and I quote this in the book somewhere, he actually says, you know, the cosmonauts and particularly Titov are now almost up to circus standards in their trampolining. Which is, you know, if you apply that to any American astronaut and you imagine that any of these American astronauts were up to circus standards in their trampolining, the idea is madness. It's just completely crazy. But in the Soviet case, this was the key. This is what they did. And 
Titov was a great trampoliner. I mean, you know, he was a great athlete and he was very, very, very fit. And at the time he flew in August on the 60th anniversary is actually in this week that we're talking now about it. In that week, he was going to need that because his flight, as I'm sure we'll discuss, was far bolder, far more dangerous, far more challenging and really far more interesting and a far bigger achievement than Yuri Gagarin's flight four months previously. Do, do you think that his bolshiness affected yeah. his, the choice of who was going to be first? I think there was an element of that. There was also, I mean, definitely there was an element of that, because actually the the, the, one, the head of Soviet cosmonaut training, a guy called Nikolai Kamanin, who had this secret diary that he was confiding in every night, which I talked about, I think, with you last time we spoke about Yuri Gagarin, and which is a really fascinating fly-on-the-wall kind of view into what was going on behind the scenes, and which I quote in the book. There's some fantastic stuff in there. And this guy, Kamanin, talks about how difficult Titov can be, how he likes to keep himself to himself, how there's a there's a group meeting where they all go off to the, watch the movie together, all the cosmonauts, you know, a collective cosmonaut cinema outing. And Titov chooses to stay at home and not be part of it. I mean, this is in the Soviet Union in communist Russia, where it's all about the group. And this is something that did not, you know, did not go down very well. So the Bolsheviks, the separateness, the feistiness, the, all of that, not a great thing. But another issue that Titov had was actually his name, that name that was based on that character in that short story by Pushkin I was talking about, German, G-H-E-R-M-A-N is how we spell it. But it looks like German. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. It's German Titov. It could easily be pronounced like that. We are approximately, what, um, 16 years after the end of the Second World War, when millions of citizens of the Soviet Union were killed or wounded in the Second World War, when the Germans overran a substantial part of the country, when cities were destroyed. I mean, you know, there are not good relations at that point between the USSR and Germany. And memories are, I mean, it's not that long memories, it's not that long ago. So would the representative of this incredibly important moment in history, when the Soviet Union would flourish as the acknowledged greatest technological power in the world by putting the first human being in space. And that human being had a name, which was German, literally German, Titov, was going to be a problem. And that's something we know 
that Khrushchev himself, the Soviet premier at the time, worried about. He worried about that. He worried about the fact that this is not the best representative. Another problem that German had was that little boy that died. Yuri Gagarin had two, had the perfect family set up, two little children. He's got a little baby who's just been born that adds a powerfully sentimental flavor to his flight. He also has another child who's about two years old. Titov has a son, Igor, who died tragically. I mean, so tragically that when I interviewed Tamara, his wife, a year and a half ago in Moscow, 60 years after Igor had died, she was not able to talk to me about it. She really could not talk about it. The pain was was very raw still with her. So she, this is this is a terribly painful incident. And yet it also hurts his chances of going first because, again, the biography isn't quite right as the great superhero Soviet in the middle of the Cold War. What you've got is somebody who has a child that died, who has the wrong name, that is not actually able particularly to get on so well with people as Yuri Gagarin. But what you also have, and this comes out in Kamanin's diary, is a recognition that Titov has superior strengths to Gagarin, so much so that he needs to be reserved for the much more difficult second flight, the one that took place in August 1961, because he will cope with the strains and stresses imposed by that flight and the greater risks of that flight better than Yuri Gagarin. So he's kept back. He's not the right person for number one, but he's the perfect person for number two. With, with the astronaut selection, I mean, obviously they were selected on fitness, but with a view to propaganda, were they also selected on looks? <laughs> uh, well, it's funny you should say that. I do mention this in my book. Yes. I mean, the photographs of the last two contenders, there was a third called Nelyubov. He was sort of booted out at the last because he was just too arrogant and too difficult. And in fact, he ended up being booted out of the space program altogether. Wow, and more difficult than... Uh... Yeah, yeah. I mean, really more difficult. I mean, these are difficult guys. You know, they're kind of... He was he was a very kind of supposedly quite narcissistic man who got into a uh, very interesting story, briefly got into an argument with... Um, he got drunk and got into an argument with a railway inspector, actually, um, at a train station and 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 started saying, you know, do you know who I am? I'm a member of the cosmonaut training, all of this stuff, which did not go down well. He was given an opportunity to apologize. He didn't. He was booted out of the program. He was never, ever returned to the program. He was literally erased from the program. I mean, there are photographs of the cosmonauts in the 1960s. And this guy, Nelyubov, his face has been removed. I mean, he's gone. He's been photoshopped out. He doesn't exist. And he ended up being sent to an Air Force base in one of the worst parts of the Soviet Union, right out in the far east of the country, as far away from Moscow as you could ever get. And then he committed suicide. That was his story. Titov, so this is a warning. This is what can happen. This is not like the Mercury 7. I mean, if you go wrong, you end up being booted out and no one is coming for you after that, coming to help you. Uh, You are out. You are literally in Siberia or beyond. That's what happens to you. And they all knew this. So in that light, Titov's feistiness and willingness to challenge and to break rules and to write letters that he shouldn't write and to tell his wife everything, all that stuff has to be placed in the context of a culture 
where challenging the law, breaking the rules, standing up to the secret police or the KGB carries penalties utterly different from what would happen in the United States, you know, but he still did it all the same. So Titov was the last two with Gagarin, both of them good looking. Actually, Tito was considered to be a, a very handsome guy. And you can see it. I mean, he, he, he kind of went to rot slightly later on, don't we all? But nevertheless, he was, he, was, he was a very handsome guy, very fit, very kind of ripped. You know, he was a good looking guy. And it went all the way up to Khrushchev, who actually saw the photographs of Gagarin and Titov side by side and said, look, they're both great guys. They both look good. You choose. So he went all the way back down the Soviet chain of command. <laughs> until it finally reached that guy, Kamanin, the head of cosmonaut training, who then calls both men into his office on April the 9th, 1961, and tells them both right there and then, three days before the first human flight, tells them that Gagarin will go first and Titov will be the backup. He tells them that. And he also says that Titov, in one of the great understatements of the century, he says that Titov was slightly disappointed when the reality was that Titov was devastated. He was, you know, he's the Buzz Aldrin, the guy that gets to walk on the moon second, you know, and lives with the consequences of that for the rest of his life, you know, which is why it's sort of wonderful that we're talking about him now. So he has to live with that and he comes out and he's absolutely devastated. And the pain continues because as Gagarin's backup, he has to do everything that Gagarin does just in case something goes wrong with Gagarin. He has to, he has to wear the spacesuit on the day. He has to travel with the spacesuit on, with Gagarin also suited up right there to the launch pad. And he says in one of his interviews, one of the last interviews of his life, he said, I sat there hoping that there might be a hole in Yuri Gagarin's spacesuit, or that he might trip up, or that he might just have a panic attack, or that something would happen in the last minutes from the moment they arrived at the launch pad to the moment at 0907 a.m. on that date of April the 12th, 1961, when that rocket launched. Something between those two moments, which would mean that Gagarin would not go and that Titov would step into his place and effectively step into history. And that's what he was praying for. And it didn't happen. And then the word comes down to Titov that it is time to take off his spacesuit. And I interviewed the woman that helped him do that. And she was amazing. And she says, and it's in the book, she talks about how she removed his helmet, you know, lifted up the faceplate, removed his helmet. He was, he was broken and took off bit by bit the gloves and the garments of his spacesuit, the outer garments of his spacesuit. And she describes very beautifully and very movingly how she did this, she said, like a mother would with her son who was in pain. And everything finally was off, apart from obviously his undergarments. And then he retired to another section of the Cosmodrome to watch his comrade Yuri Garin lift off into history. And that's what happened to him. Wow. Wow. So when with the, the second mission, yes. uh, Vostok 2, yes. um, 
how how is the training done for that? Is there a standby cosmonaut for for that one as well? In the there was there was a standby cosmonaut for that one, and there were for, uh, there are for every single flight, as there are for you know uh, there were for the, all the Apollo uh, missions, and also indeed for the Mercury missions. But in the case of Titov, there wasn't really much more training to do, except in one absolutely critical key thing, which was unlike Yuri Gagarin, who went around the world in this kind of oversized cannonball, and he was not allowed to touch the controls. I mean, he had a system which was insane, where with a code, he was able to unlock the controls in an emergency, but he wasn't terribly well trained for it, unlike the American astronauts. The decision with Titov was that he would have the opportunity to fly, to pilot his spacecraft, his Vostok 2, to use those controls. And so there was much more simulator training that took place on one of the, and the only simulator that existed at that time in the whole of the Soviet Union, which was a rather primitive simulator in Moscow. And he went there to do more training on that. This mission that was planned was completely different from Gagarin's. Gagarin's mission was one single orbit of the Earth, which took 106 minutes. He flew all the way around the planet once, landed back again. His job was basically to sit there. Nobody knew exactly what was going to happen. This is the first human being into space. So they weren't taking any chances. They're quite explicit about this. One orbit, because so many things could go wrong, and back to Mother Russian soil, because they landed back in Russia on hard ground, not on the sea like the Americans did. Titov's mission was 25 hours. He was in orbit for over 17 orbits of the Earth. So he was in space for more than a day. Let me put that into perspective. Gagarin was 108, 106 minutes. The second person in space was the American Alan Shepard. His flight, a suborbital flight, a bit like Branson's flight, uh, Richard Branson's flight recently, or Jeff Bezos' flight recently, a very similar profile, was essentially an up and down affair where he hit space and came straight down, but didn't go into orbit. 15 minutes, 15 minutes. That was in April, that was in May 1961. August 1961, three days after that 15 minute flight, Titov is in space for 25 hours. So although he is the second human being to fly in orbit after Yuri Gagarin. He is the first to fly more than one orbit. He is the first to try to sleep in space. He actually goes to sleep in space. He is the first to film the Earth from space. He takes a movie camera with him, a 35mm colour film movie camera, points it through the porthole and gives the world the first view of the world, which is an incredible idea and it sends shivers through me. And I've seen that raw colour footage and it's incredible. It's the first time anybody had filmed our planet from space. He was the first to do that. He was the first, as I said, to use the first Soviet cosmonaut to use manual controls, actually to fly his spacecraft. And he was also the first to be sick in space because he suffered he was the first person, because he got there for so long, to suffer from something we call space adaptation syndrome, which many, many astronauts and cosmonauts suffer from, where in the weightless effects that you have in space, your, your vestibular balance mechanisms of your inner ear go bonkers, and it causes nausea and dizziness and giddiness and sickness. And 
somewhere around the fourth orbit, Titos started to feel really unwell. I mean, to the point where he was not able to communicate properly. He was that unwell. And there were concerns on the ground whether he should be brought back because he was that unwell. But he continued and was almost certainly fainted at one point, certainly was sick at one point, and continued orbiting the Earth. And it wasn't until he got to round about the 13th or 14th orbit, which was hours and hours later, that the nausea began to go, that he became acclimatized. So he's the first to be sick in space, which teaches them a lot. So there are all these things which are absolutely massive. I mean, the ambition, Ian, of the Soviet space program at that point to put a man in space to travel, get this, a distance, which was almost equivalent to the moon and back. He traveled 700,000 kilometers, well over 400,000 miles in space. And this is in August 1961, just four months after Yuri Gagarin's one and a half hour flight, and just three months after Alan Shepard's three, what is it, 15 minute flight, and almost a year, not quite, eight months or so before the American John Glenn did his three orbits of the Earth. This is really big stuff. And it is beautiful going into the Soviet or the Russian archives, it is now as I did in Moscow. And in these dusty archives, opening up these old tins of film and putting them onto a little projection, projection system, an editing suite system called a steam bay with a little screen and then turning them. And suddenly in front of you is the earth as it was from space in August 1961. And there it is in all its beauty and in all its color and in all its glory. It is really it's a it's a it's a kind of a shiver causing moment it really is a spine tingling experience so he did all of this and then when he comes down to earth typically with titov this guy that breaks the rules does things differently doesn't play it by the book like gagarin he lands off they all land off course he lands off course and he lands in this region called saratov and his landing is almost a complete disaster. It's almost straight out of a Family Guy episode. I mean, he he has to parachute, as they all do, eject and parachute out of his capsule in the last, I don't know, 20,000 feet of the, as it comes back to Earth, because the technology did not exist for a human being to land in the capsule on Mother Russian soil. It, it, he would have died, crashed down, even though, of course, the capsule itself had a parachute. It wasn't strong enough to hold both of them capsule and the human. So he had to eject like a jet fighter. So he ejects, as Gagarin did three or four months previously, and down he comes. And as he comes down, he realizes that he's going to literally parachute straight in front of an oncoming train. And he desperately maneuvers, as he's been taught in parachute training, the shrouds of his canopy, of his parachute canopy, to kind of move out of the way. And he just misses this train, which screeches to a halt. And he kind of literally falls down the bank. And all these passengers are looking out of the window at this guy who's just not been killed by a hair's breadth by their own train. And a woman who's driving a car on a parallel road to the railway, who's obviously been listening on the radio to the fact that Titov has been in space and is coming back and another great Soviet hero, realises this must be the guy, this must be him. She's so excited that she loses control of her car and 
veers off the road, hits a pothole and bangs her head on a steering wheel. So Titov, with his helmet still on, stumbles up to having just missed this train, which is now screeched to a halt with 150,000, whatever it is, passengers looking out of the windows, goes up to this woman and has to use his own first aid kit in his emergency pack in order to bandage the woman's face. Brilliant. In order, because she's bleeding from this. And that's how he arrives back from 25 hours and 17 plus orbits in now, space. Now, before we, we uh, <laughs> turn the recording on, you promised that Titov's story was even more extraordinary than Gagarin's. And uh, it's certainly living up to that, Stephen. He was a, he was a, he was he became the bad boy of the cosmonaut training program. That feistiness we've talked about, I think the combination of being second, um, although he became incredibly famous, it was a huge parade for him, just as there was for Yuri Gagarin. But his kind of bad boy thing became worse. He got involved with, I mean, he became very seriously alcoholic. He got involved in loads of drink driving accidents. I mean, he was a very, very fast driver. He loved to drive fast. He drove, he drank. He, at one point, smashed into a bus. Um, He went on a disastrous tour of the United States in 1962. It was so bad um, that the American press absolutely hated him. He would make, I mean, he did all the wrong things, all the things that Gagarin did right, he did wrong. He would make fun of the skyscrapers in New York. He thought the Washington Monument was a bit of a joke. He ridiculed the pictures in the Museum of Modern Art in New York. He was booed by the traders on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange in Wall Street. I mean, he made so many enemies. I mean, he he really did. And and yet he became good friends with John Glenn, who had also by that time completed his orbital flight to the Earth, the first American astronaut to do so. And there was a lovely story, which I quote in the book, where they had an impromptu barbecue together. And both of them managed to set fire to the barbecue. And they nearly kind of killed themselves in a fire from this barbecue, which they both somehow managed to put out at the last moment and then treated themselves to some extremely burned steaks. But in 1964, he got involved in an even murkier incident, which involved a fatality where a woman that was actually in his car, and it's all very dark, this stuff, ended up being killed as a result of one of his drink driving episodes. And we don't know quite what happened. It seems to have been covered up. It may not even really have happened. His wife, Tamara, said that it never did. But you know what? Something very murky happened. The woman died in hospital that night. Titov uh, ended up going home. Um, He was, if it had come out, it would have destroyed not just the cosmonaut, the reputation of the cosmonaut, training program and the cosmonaut and the space program in the Soviet Union, but it would have had a massive impact on the reputation of the Soviet Union as a whole at this critical time in 1964 in the Cold War. And it became a really big deal. And internally, a decision must have been made. It's quite clear from Kamanin's diaries that it was. A decision was made to cover the thing up. And so it never came out. But Titov was told that he had to clean up his act from that point on. And he did start to clean up. That bad boy, the whoring, the drinking, the driving accidents, and then this terrible fatality was actually put behind him 
you know, and it's a curious contradiction because he also clearly loved his wife, but then he had this kind of, he had these demons at the same time and the demons tortured him and the demons pursued him, they hounded him. And only after this terrible, murky, difficult, probably covered up episode in 1964 did things start to change. But he always was left with that feeling that he would disappear into obscurity that he would be the eternal number two until nobody cared about number two, despite these extraordinary things that he'd achieved. And, and so gradually it came to pass. And when he died in his own sauna at the age of 65 in the year 2000, he was actually dead there for almost a day before he was discovered. I think as some of his own friends and comrades in the space program said, that he died unhappy he died disappointed. He died as somebody who had lost, in a sense, his purpose. And when he was buried, unlike Yuri Gagarin, who was buried as a hero after his very mysterious death in a jet plane in 1968, he was buried with full honours in the wall of the Kremlin. German Titov was buried in a private cemetery. He was not buried with full honours in the wall of the Kremlin. And so in a way, that decision that was made in that office on April the 9th, 1961, where Yuri Gagarin would go first and German Titov would go second, was perpetuated beyond the grave. When we spoke about Gagarin before, mm, yeah. that mission, I think, had a, it was believed to have had a 50-50 chance of success. Yeah. Less than 50-50 Less chance. than 50-50, right. So, and w what sort of odds were there around Titov's mission? The reality is that there has never been a calculation as such, but the reality must be that they were even worse because the rockets were the same. They hadn't changed. Their reputation was whatever they were, which was that they a lot of them blew up in the launch pad. There were still issues at every point along the flight that could kill a man who was going aboard the capsule on top of the rocket and taking that flight. So there was no question that the risks were actually greater because this was not a short flight. This was a much, much longer flight with much more challenging things happening in that flight. And so the possibility of things going wrong were greater. As it happened, one key thing went wrong in exactly the same way as it did for Yuri Gagarin, which was that the capsule, the Vostok, was actually made up of two parts. The sphere, which is like an oversized cannonball, as I was saying, where the human being sits, and then attached to it, essentially the retro rocket pack. It contains more than just the retro rocket, but it's the, it's essentially that. And the two bits are stuck together. And the idea is, is that actually before re-entry into the Earth's atmosphere, where the temperatures become unbelievably hot and you have to have heat shields and goodness knows what, these two sections separate. And the sphere continued with the protection of its heat shield all the way through the atmosphere and the heat of re-entry and the other bit, the retro-racket pit, which just burn up as it comes down. And just as it did with Yuri Gagarin, the two bits did not separate. So at first, so the Vostok with its two bits still together was literally tumbling towards the edge, the upper edge of the atmosphere. And they were still stuck together. And unless they unstuck, Titov was in for a very fiery death. 
because there was no heat shield with the other bits. It would all start to burn up, and then the heat would then no doubt you know, penetrate the little sphere inside of which he was sitting, or it might slightly separate and the two might collide. The two sections might actually bang into each other and destroy the sphere in which he was sitting. There were a numbers of very gruesome ways in which you could die. And so this problem had not been fixed. It was supposed to be fixed, but they were rushing, rushing, rushing. They had this very challenging flight. They wanted to prove to the world after this much smaller, much more unimpressive flight of Alan Shepard's that they, the Soviet Union, could do even greater things, even more amazing space spectaculars. And so it hadn't been addressed. And the result of that was that Titov, just like Gagarin before him, very nearly died and died horribly, would have died horrifically. I mean, by being burned to death. And as it happened, the two sections, just as they had with Yuri Gagarin, were actually separated in the end by the sheer heat of re-entry. The cables attaching the two parts were burned off as the two bits plummeted together through the atmosphere. And there was a cut finally, and they separated, and Titov was free. But it could easily have killed him. In- incredible bravery of these guys mm. to go up there knowing what what could happen i mean i've sat i've sat actually ian i'm sorry to just jump in but i've sat in one of those things um i was actually lucky enough to be invited to the museum of what was okb1 and now is energia which is basically nasa in it's the soviet the russian now version of nasa and they had this museum which until very recently people who were people who were not russians were not allowed to go in but my researcher who was russian managed god knows how to persuade, to bribe, who knows, got me in there. And I sat in one of the Vostoks. Um, I mean, it is horrible. It is a claustrophobic, tight, sealed in space with three small portholes. And just sitting there in this tiny sphere in the museum, I felt, I felt sick. I felt fragile. I felt claustrophobic. I felt fear actually. Um, I really did. And that's just in a completely safe space of a museum. So the idea that you'd sit and strap yourself into that, the second person to do so, with all of the odds against you on a 700,000 kilometre journey around the planet, and God knows what's going to happen to you. The idea that you could, you could do that and somehow survive that and have the sort of internal strength if you like the the moral intellectual strength the spiritual strength actually to face that and to cope with that and to survive it uh, is remarkable i mean it's a horrible experience sitting in one of those things it really is it's really nasty yeah i'm presuming he was uh, reciting the works of pushkin <laughs> was, uh, hurtling around the world <laughs> The night before he left for the Cosmodrome, Tamara told me, his wife told me something kind of interesting. He said, she said to me that he, there was a lock that was not working properly on the front door of their apartment. And he spent hours and hours and hours that night fiddling with the lock. You know, he couldn't let it go until it was perfect. And she kept saying, it's done. What's wrong? It's just a lock. It's fine. Don't worry about it. You'll be back in two weeks. But he didn't. He just kept on working at this lock, you know, with a little screwdriver and a 
pen knife and just working it until he got it smooth and it was working again. And I think that action is very human. It's 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 a, not just a distraction; it's a focus, and it's also an indication of fear that can't be expressed. And I think um, it's just one of those little telling. I don't actually have this in my book, but it's one of those telling tiny little details that speak the situation and that speak the man. Did did he work at all on the Soviet moon mission? He was actually. What happened to him was after this kind of terrible you know, scandal, if that's what it was. And I have to be a bit careful about all this because nothing is actually proved. But after this so-called scandal of 1964, where things were supposedly covered up, you know, with this fatality, this woman who died in the accident, he um, was moved to a different part of the programme. And and what he was moved to was something really interesting. He was moved to work on a project called Spiral, which was a development of the first rocket space plane i mean it was decades ahead of its time it's a bit like the space shuttle it's a bit like actually in some ways it has some parallels with spaceship two you know the richard branson thing that went up very recently it was basically um, a hypersonic space plane that was going to be attached to a mothership and the mothership would then release it uh, when it was still in the atmosphere, and then it would shoot up into space. Um, it was also called the MiG-105, and he worked on this thing. Um, and and he was flying jets in order to kind of get his flying right up to speed, because this is what he was going to be doing. And then the program, like the Soviet lunar program, for all sorts of reasons to do with a change of premiership from Khrushchev to Brezhnev, who was much more interested in missiles than in space successes, with a change in the leadership of the space program, because the guy that had the vision and the ambition and the energy and the intellectual might and the political clout, Sergei Korolev, the secret head of the Soviet space program, died in a horrible botched operation in 1966. And his replacement, a man called Mission, was actually nothing like as good and nothing like as focused. And also the rocket that was going to the Saturn V equivalent that was going to take a Soviet cosmonaut to the moon kept blowing up in all of its tests on the launch pad. It just wasn't working properly. So the whole thing, the whole sort of glory and energy and focus and ambition and challenge and excitement and success of the Soviet program started to fall apart. And the Americans started to move ahead with their Gemini and then their Apollo moon program. And Titov was ensnared in that gradual disintegration. And his spiral program with that rocket space plane was one of those casualties. So his dream, and he had a dream of landing on the moon, of seeing what Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and all those Apollo astronauts who went to the moon actually saw. His dreams of being part of a colony on the moon, possibly even, because that's what they were thinking, even in the early 60s. That's why there were so many cosmonauts selected, of getting to Mars by about 1975, which is one of the dates that were mooted at that time. These dreams crumbled. And there is, as I said, there is that sadness by those later years, that's not just Titov narcissistically feeling I was second and I should have been first, but actually the whole Soviet space program had sort of fallen into abeyance. And at that point, the Americans, as indeed they are again now, were just way ahead. But 
I should say that for Titov himself, there was some humility and some of his ruthless honesty, which was also disarming in some respects, I mean, attractive, comes into play because what he also said, and he said this towards the end of his life, was that Yuri Gagarin was the right man for that first flight. They chose the right guy. And they chose the right guy because Yuri had a way with people. This is what he said that I didn't have. He said this in one of the very last interviews he ever gave before he died. He said he was the right choice. I would have been the wrong choice. And however much I've dwelled in my life and what it feels like to be second, it was actually right that I was second and that Yuri became humanity's representative in space and the first to be so. And I think that's something that we have to remember. I think that's something which is uh, an expression of his own honesty and a certain kind of humility in there as well that is attractive and I find very moving, particularly because he said so and he said those words right at the end of his life. There's further information such as photos and videos in our episode notes, which will show as a link in your podcast app. Now, this show wouldn't exist without our generous Patreons, so I want to thank one and all of them for their support. You can very easily become a Patreon by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. And you can also join our Facebook group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War conversation. Thanks very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.